My name's Craig. I'm one of the elders here at Crosspoint, and this morning we are beginning a uh, three-week series called A Flyover of the Book of Revelation. We're going to go through the entire book of Revelation in three weeks. Uh, that's why we're calling it a flyover. So uh, it's going to be kind of like seeing the Grand Canyon from an airplane window. You get to look down and see the immensity of it, the beauty of it, and, and that's kind of the picture we're going to get of the book of Revelation here. Um, we're going to see it from a big perspective. Uh, my hope is after we're done that you are motivated to uh, go back and backpack through the canyon, so to speak, and, and look at the beauty of the details in this book. Uh, this is my favorite book of the Bible. And there th- there's three reasons I want to share the book of Revelation with you. Um, number one is without the book of Revelation, we would have a huge hole in our perspective of who Jesus is and of his plan. <clears throat> you think about it, um, without the book of Revelation, our view of Christ might be uh, limited to what we see of him in the Gospels, where he's meek and humble, he's a servant, he's willing to suffer. But in Revelation, we see that he's eternal, almighty God. He's conquering king. He's judge of all men. Uh, without Revelation, we would have our, our view of eternity would be sketchy at best. But with Revelation, we can get a good grasp on what God has in store for us. And, and with that good grasp of the future, we can have the assurance that whatever life deals us, we can deal with it because we know what God has for us. Um, The second reason is the book of Revelation is often avoided altogether by many Christians. Uh, For example, how many of you read the book of Revelation on a regular basis devotionally? Now, I admit, it's it's one of the tougher books, uh, and it can be weird. After all, it's filled with angels and kings and dragons, many-headed monsters, strange flying creatures, and a dead lamb who rules the world. It's, kind of, it's a bit like reading The Lord of the Rings, but uh, we're going to dive in and tackle it. If you'll turn to uh, the first chapter, Revelation 1.1, we're going to start at the beginning and work our way chapter by chapter through this entire book, and uh, after you see how far we get today, you're probably going to doubt that we finish it, but we're going to. The first three verses of uh, Revelation chapter 3 give us the purpose clause of this book. It tells us why it was written. The revelation of Jesus Christ which John gave to him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent it and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation in the Greek is apocalypse. And I think from our culture, or the movies, the books, we would probably get the idea that the word apocalypse means the end of all time, uh, uh, bad things happening. And yet the, the word apocalypse actually means to reveal or to unveil. This is the unveiling of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, this book was to make it clear who Jesus Christ really is. Jesus Christ is not a created being. He's not just a prophet. He's no longer a suffering servant. We see in this book that he is eternal, almighty God with a body. We just look at the titles given to us about of Christ in his book. The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the rulers over the kings of the earth, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, he who is, who was, and who is to come, 
the Almighty, the first and the last, the Son of God, He who lives, He who is holy, He who is true, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the Lion of the tribe of Juba, the Lamb, holy and true, Lord God Almighty, King of the saints, the Word of God, King of kings and Lord of lords, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. This book exalts Jesus Christ and shows that he is in sovereign control and he's orchestrating a plan to restore everything to the way that it was intended to be. If you look at verse 3, uh, it contains the third reason why I want to share this book with you. It says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and the heed to the things which are written in it. Uh, this is the only book of the Bible that comes with a promise of blessing to those who read and hear and heed. So you're ready to get blessed? The Lord has promised it. Here we go. Uh, chapter or Verses 4 through 8 give us the salutation, the greeting of the book. Uh, back then in this culture, they signed the letter at the beginning and gave the gr greetings at the beginning uh, so that you didn't have to flip through to the back page to see who this letter was from. It, it kind of makes sense. Uh, this letter is from John. The Apostle John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, that's God the Father, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the focus of this book. And it goes on to magnify Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. We're going to see in Revelation that uh, uh, that is why he is worthy. That is why he is magnified. He, he bought us back. He paid the, the price for our sins. And then he made us to be a kingdom, us, his followers, a kingdom and priest to his God. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Uh, right here at the beginning, we see that th this promise that Jesus Christ is coming back. Uh, and he's not coming back as a humble servant the next time. He's coming back as king of kings to uh, rule the world. Uh, verses 9 through 11 give us the circumstances of, of this writing. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on, on, on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Patmos was a prison island. He was exiled there, it says here, because he was faithful in preaching the word and proclaiming Christ. Uh, that was his crime. And uh, he, he is on this prison island. And it says in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. So uh, verse 12, John turns to see the voice that was speaking with him. Uh, 12 through 16, he's going to turn around and he's going to see a vision of the glorified Christ. And as we get into these verses, we're going to start to... Uh, see signs and symbols and word pictures. And throughout the Bible, God uses this kind of language when speaking of future events. And while it may seem a bit vague on the front side, after the fulfillment of the prophecy, 
It tends to be very plain. For example, in Isaiah chapter 53, it was written 700 years before Christ. And um, those who read it in the Old Testament times would, would understand that this is, a, this is about the Messiah, and it kind of looks like he's a, he might suffer. But after Jesus came and fulfilled this prophecy, we can see very plainly that Isaiah 53 is describing the scourging and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. A bit vague on the front side, but after it's fulfilled, very clear and very plain. Uh, the prophetic language of Revelation is often tied back to the languages and types of the Old Testament. For example, in chapter 5, Jesus re is referred to as a lamb. Now, the early church readers would have instantly thought, when they hear lamb, thought back to the, uh, the sacrificial system and the fact that the lamb was an innocent sacrifice for the sins of the people. And that is what Jesus came to be a sacrifice for the sins of, of, of the people. He was actually the fulfillment of all those uh, sacrifices. It's what everything was pointing to, Jesus Christ and Him being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the Old Testament is very much tied in with the, the, these prophecies. In fact, there's 404 verses in the book of Revelation. 278 of those verses have at least one Old Testament reference. So while... Us who don't know the Old Testament very well, it can be a little bit confusing. The, uh, those who, to whom this was originally written knew their Old Testament very well. That was their Bible. Uh, so a lot of these Old Testament references were very familiar to them and, and a little less confusing. Uh, the, the third thing about uh, signs and symbols, word pictures, is word pictures and figurative language are common practices of everyday language. Uh, we use them all the time, and we don't even think about it. For example, uh, let's say a father compliments his son. We would say that afterwards the boy's face lit up. None of us think that the boy's face started to glow. We don't jump to that conclusion. We're familiar with word pictures. But how much more descriptive is that than saying, the, and the boy smiled? When we use a word picture, along with it, not just the smiling, it, it reveals, we, we kind of get a picture in our mind instantly, the, the, uh, the brightness in his eyes, uh, the feelings that come along with it, and that's what word pictures do for us. Um, verse 12, let's go back to verse 12. Let's look at this vision of the glorified Christ. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, now, here again, the uh, early readers of this, when they hear Son of Man, would have instantly thought back to the Old Testament, and Son of Man would just relate to Messiah to them. Clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Think uh, standing at the base of Niagara Falls and the, uh, just that, that awesome noise, that loudness. That's the voice of Christ. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. 
Uh, this is this is symbolic language to describe what Jesus is seeing when he turns and sees around, turns around, and sees Jesus glorified. Um, and it's full of word pictures. He's trying to describe something he can't. And it's also to, to represent things, just like the lamb is to re represent a character of Jesus Christ. Uh, for instance, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. How many think when John turned around, there was a, Jesus had a, a sword in his mouth? No. What, uh, what normally comes out of a person's mouth? Words. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. You see, Revelation is not so weird when you understand that the Bible interprets the Bible. Um, you need to, uh, to look back at, at what the rest of the Bible says, and, and it, it, it will kind of interpret itself. In fact, if you look over at verse 20 is an example of that. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here's the Bible interpreting itself, explaining itself. Um, the, uh, John turns around and he sees Jesus standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands and here it says that those are the churches. This is a picture of Jesus being central in the churches. And the seven stars are the, that he holds in his right hand, he says, are the angels of the seven churches. That word is messenger, probably refers to the pastors of the seven churches. So this is a picture of the glorified Christ standing centrally in the midst of the churches with the, uh, those, the pastors of those seven churches firmly in his right hand. Uh, this is a vision of Christ that pictures him as king, as priest, and as judge in its characteristics. I'm not going to have time to explain all the signs and symbols used in Revelation as we go through this, but I hope I've equipped you to not be so intimidated by them. Uh, so if it sounds weird as you're studying this, cross-reference to the same kind of language in the Old Testament. Read some good commentaries. Remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the hiding of Jesus Christ. This is to, this is, uh, to make things clear, not muddy. It just takes a little bit more work, a little more, more digging than, than we're accustomed to. Look at verse 17. It's, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not fear. Remember, this is the Apostle John. This is, uh, this is the man who walked with Jesus for three and a half years. He was one of Jesus' inner circle, the top three the disciples, spent the most time with Jesus. Uh, he's the uh, disciple that is described as the disciple which Jesus loved. And you notice John doesn't go running up to him and hug him and say, Jesus, it's so good to see you. He says he falls at his feet as a dead man. Um, I don't know what your view of Jesus is, but he's not just a little bit higher than man. He is unbridled power and glory. He is holy, totally set apart from his creation. He is greatness and his greatness and majesty are indescribable. He is awesome. I think the the word awesome is thrown around a little bit too much these days. Um, somebody's hair can be awesome these days. Um, 
But awesome has the root word awe. And it's just like what it sounds. It's something that makes you go, oh. It's, it, it, it's something that blows you away. It's like when you come up over a, a hill and you see this beautiful sunset all, all of a sudden. It's like, oh. It's, it's a guttural expression without words that is just elicited from you because of the majesty of it. And I think it uh, awesome is something that we need to reserve for God because only God and his creation are awesome, something that elicits that from us. And if you were ushered into the presence of Jesus Christ in your human state, it would scare you to death, just like it did the Apostle John, because he is awesome. Uh, verse 19 gives us kind of an outline of the book of Revelation. It says, Write therefore the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which must take place after these. The things which you have seen is the, the vision of Christ here in chapter 1. The things which are are the letters to the churches or the church age in chapters 2 and 3. And the things which shall take place after these are things that are yet future, described in chapters 4 through 22. So uh, let's look at chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the churches. Um, this is Jesus' personal message to seven actual churches addressing the condition that they are in. And each letter contains a phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And since everyone here has an ear, we know that these messages are for us also. These are actually good chapters to be reading devotionally because they're kind of a heart check for us. Where are we? What does Christ think of us? Each of these messages include uh, a description of Christ. Each one begins with that, uh, and it refers back to a description of him found in chapter 1. It contains a commendation, something that he commends them for, except for Laodicea. It contains a rebuke, except to Smyrna and Philadelphia. It contains an exhortation, a command to do something, a promise to those who overcome, and I know, and a command to hear. So, the first letter, verses uh, 1 through 7, message to Ephesus. This is how these letters start, to the angel or the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Right. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, that picture of Christ. Each one begins with one of these pictures of Christ. He starts out right out with a commendation. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured and for my name's sake and have not grown weary as this was being read to those in Ephesus, they're probably going, yeah, high five in one another. Uh, they're doing pretty good. This church had a lot going for it. But there's a but in here. He says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. This is a church of neglected priorities. And I think it's so easy of a place for us to be in where we get to be serving the Lord and we're doing stuff for Him and we're very busy and we neglect our time with him. We neglect the one who it's all about. Um, and his exhortation to them is, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember back to the days 
when you first became a Christian, when you spent time with him in his word, in prayer. He says, remember those things. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. Uh, verse 7, we see the promise to the overcomers. Some of yours might say victors. Uh, overcomer, victor, think true believer. Um, 1 John 5, 4 and 5 says that... Uh, the one who overcomes is the one who believes in Jesus Christ, uh, a true believer. So you can, you can put your name there if, if that is, applies to you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, verse 7, to him who overcomes, that's, that's us as believers. These are promises, future promises to us. They apply to not just these churches but to us. I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of, of God. Uh, promising eternal life to uh, the true believers. The message to Smyrna, 8 through 11, verse 9 says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not but a synagogue of Satan. This is a message to the persecuted church. They're having a tough time. They're in tribulation. They, they have pressure from without. And his exhortation to them is, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. And in the end of the verse, Be faithful until death. Do you find it interesting that Jesus doesn't say, Just, just have faith in me. I'm going to rescue out of, you out of this. No, he says, Don't fear what you are about to suffer and be faithful unto death. The Lord's plan for us isn't always rescue, but it is always for good. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, he says. You will be rewarded for it. Uh, verse 11, to him who overcomes, he shall not be hurt by the second death. He's saying to them, you may die, things are going to get rough, but the first death is not the real death. The second death, the lake of fire, that's what you want to avoid, and you're not going to be hurt by it. Uh, the message to Pergamum in verses uh, 12 through 17 uh, starts out in verse 13 with a commendation, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you, held fa you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Uh, these believers in Pergamum lived in a culture that w it was tough to be a Christian. And... Uh, Verse 14, we see the rebuke to this church. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrifices to, uh, to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Uh, religious compromise was this church's problem. Uh, they were believing the false teachers of the day and compromising their morals. And uh, we live in a day that is full. The church is full of false teachers. And uh, it, it's something that, that Jesus wants us to be looking out for and certainly not to be buying into. Uh, his exhortation to them is very simple. Repent, therefore, in verse 16. The promise to the overcomer. Remember, these are all to us, to him who overcomes, the true believer. To him I will give some of the hidden manna, 
and it will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but him who receives it. I don't have time to unpack this, but uh, basically this is probably uh, speaking of an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb and uh, be given, being given a new name. So if you don't like the name your mom and dad gave you, hey, Jesus is going to give you a new one. It might mean that, I don't know, I don't know. Uh, verses 18 through 29, message to Thyatira. He starts uh, out with a commendation in verse 19, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. This sounds like a church that has a lot going for it too. Uh, but I have this against you, he says, the, review, re, the rebuke in verse 20. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Uh, this church had a woman in it who was a false teacher. And uh, I, th I think the way this reads, the people in the church, many of the people in the church, the leaders in the church had identified her as a false teacher. They knew about it, and they tolerated it. They let it go on. And um, these next verses basically explain that Jesus says, I'm going to deal with it. Verse 25, the, the exhortation, Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. It's almost like he said, okay, you guys are too much of wimps to deal with this. I'm going to, you hold fast what you have until I come, you who are true believers. To him overcome, the true believer. To him I will give authority over the nations. This is a promise that uh, when Christ comes back to set up his kingdom, that we will be ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ. Uh, the message to Sardis starts right out with a, with a rebuke. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. This is a church uh, that is, could be described as having spiritual apathy. Um, they're the religious church. They're going through the motions. They have all the traditions, but there's no life in it. Um, doctrinally, they have strayed, and they're just keeping up the religious front. Um, his exhortation to them is to wake up and strengthen the things that remain. Those few things that remain, you, you just wake up. You strengthen those things. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. He's telling them to go back. Go back to the teachings of the apostles. What you have heard, remember it. Keep it and repent. Verse 4 is kind of, if there's a commendation in this letter, it's kind of a backhanded commendation, a backhanded compliment. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. That, that's, the, that's the commendation there. Um, you have a few people who are, are, are actual believers, who are, are, uh, are righteous. They will walk with me in white. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments. This is a promise that uh, one day we are going to have Christ's righteousness. Can you imagine, and no, you can't, I'll answer that for you, what it would be like to be completely sinless, not even able to sin, completely righteous, no evil thoughts, 
no, no evil intentions, nothing even comes up. You're just completely righteous. That is a promise to us. We're going to have the righteousness of Christ. Um, I will not erase his name from the book of life. This is, uh, talks about eternal security. Um, once you're in, the sovereign God is going to keep you as his child. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This is a promise of having our, Jesus as our advocate, our trial lawyer, so that when we stand before the father, it's going to be Jesus who says, this one's mine. I can account for him. Uh, the message to the church in Philadelphia, Delphia, thank you, uh, 7 through 13. I'm trying to get you done here in time, and I'm just talking too fast. Um, verse 8, because you have, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. This is the faithful church. This church doesn't have a lot going for it. It's not the most influential church, but there's no rebuke to, to them. They are, they are faithful. They're obedient. They're, 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 being, uh, they're following the Lord. His uh, exhortation to them is, hold fast what you have. Keep on doing what you're doing. Uh, that promise there is eternal Eternity in the presence of God as his dear possession. He writes his name upon us. Um, the message to Laodicea, the last church, the seventh letter. Starts right out in verse 15 with a rebuke. There is no commendation to this church. All he has for them is a rebuke. He says, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Uh, this is a letter to the unconverted church. These are unbelievers he's talking to. He's not talking about lukewarm Christians. I've heard many uh, messages describing this as a, a person who is not on fire anymore. He's just lukewarm. But these are not lukewarm Christians because it describes him as wanting to spit them out of his mouth. The actual word would be closer to, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. You make me sick. Uh, we, we see what their, their opinion of themselves is in verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. They think they're good with God. And this is Jesus' opinion of them actual truth of them. He knows their heart. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So uh, Jesus' exhortation to them, the, the way to, to solve the problem, what he exhorts them to do, verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich. Uh, in First Peter he talks about our faith being more precious than gold, refined by fire. Jesus is telling them, you come to me with true faith. And white garments that you may clothe yourself, that, you may, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. He says, come to me because you need my righteousness. We do not get into uh, the kingdom of God, into heaven, into the presence of God in our own righteousness. Uh, none of our good deeds are going to amount to anything. The only way we can stand in the presence of God is to have Christ's righteousness. He said, you come to me 
for righteousness. And he says, and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Only God can open the eyes of the spiritually blind. Verse 19, he says, Be zealous, therefore, and repent. That word has been used over and over and over in the book of Revelation. And uh, here is my concern as an elder, that there's many, there are many Laodicean in our churches today, <clears throat> false converts, people who think they're good with God, but they're not. And you say, how can that be? Jesus said, uh, many will say, say to me in that day, on judgment day, Lord, Lord, look at all the great things that we did for you. And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. And can you imagine anything worse than thinking, going through life thinking you're good with God and then standing before him and finding out, no, you never were. And I think, uh, I think the problem that we have is that we have a lot of people who <clears throat> have bought fire insurance, so to speak. Uh, they want to go to heaven. They want to miss hell, certainly. Um, Jesus is the answer. They believe that. They've said the prayer, invite him into their heart. But they've missed part of the equation, the thing, that word that is used over and over and over again in the book of Revelation, and that's repent. And throughout the New Testament, that word is used. Repent and believe. Um, Repentance is, is basically the submission of our will to his. It's determining who is the ultimate authority in my life. Is it me or is it God? And really that is the, uh, isn't that the basis of all sin? Is the fact that we're, we're rebels against God. We want things our way. We want to be in control of our life. Repentance is ceasing to go your own way and turning around and deciding, I'm going to follow Christ. He is the rightful king and ruler. After all, he is God. I am not. So as we conclude this morning, um, remember we said that Revelation is the revealing of the person work of Jesus Christ. So what do the first three chapters reveal about Christ? He is the eternal, almighty, glorious God. He is the Lord of the church. He is central to the church. He's zealous for the purity of the church. He despises false teachers. And he has great re rewards for those who are true believers. And who are true believers? Those who have responded in repentance and faith. Faith that his death paid the penalty for our sins. The guilty having their sins paid for by the innocent, Jesus Christ. That, death, that penalty uh, for our sins was death, and he paid it in our place. Faith that we come to Christ, to God, not in our own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. And then repentance. Repentance is coming to that place where we say, God is God and I am not. He is now Lord of my life. He is the rightful ruler of my life. If, uh, if you've never come to that place 
in your relationship with God of faith and repentance, um, I would just invite you to come up afterwards and talk to me or Pastor Eric or one of the elders. Uh, if you have any questions, we'd be glad to answer them. Uh, let's just close in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this book of Revelation and the way it magnifies your son, Jesus Christ. I just pray that as we go through it, that Jesus Christ would truly be magnified in our hearts. And we give you the praises in Jesus' name. Amen.